Today we're going to wrap up looking in Mark chapter 11, and so if you have your Bible, you can turn there for it. If you really, um, we're going to be looking at one verse. If you want to um, do a scavenger hunt and just kind of have fun, look for verse 26 in Mark 11. Um, enjoy looking for that. Um, we're going to be in verse 24, so go ahead and turn there. Um, you can find that one, verse 26. You're not going to find. How fun! Um, if you want to know why, I'll tell you later. Um, just ask me. But hey, let me uh, dive in with reading verse 24. If you've not found it yet, you can look up here to the screen. We'll read it together. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And I don't know what you think, first impression reading that verse, but I love it. It's a great verse. I, I read that verse, and I think, who wouldn't be happy Reading this verse, you kind of get happy, you start to hear music playing, it starts to be one of those wonderful like experiences in your life. Because you, if you've ever spent any time at Walt Disney World, then you know it's a place where dreams come true. You've been there. You maybe had dreams. They came true there because you believed in those dreams and, and you knew that those could happen. Um, and if you know me, you know that I'm being a tad bit um, sarcastic at this moment. But listen, there's some truth here. Because this is a verse that you could read to any non-Christian person with no exposure at all to religion and say, let me show you this verse in the Bible. I think you might like what this Bible stuff's all about. And you show them this verse, I think they'd be on board. I mean, who wouldn't be on board to get whatever you ask for? Like, who's not on board for that? I think we all are. Oh, well, I was thinking, what does it mean? Like, if I believe this, I can get it. I thought, well, I want to search for hashtag believe on social media. Um, and so I did that. I, I just kind of searched this and wanted to see what do I find here. It's interesting. I was surprised to see that I found a lot of sports references. In fact, most of, I would say 90% of the stuff that returned back to me were references to sports. When you just search this word, hashtag believe. And so... Clearly, the athletic um, folks have latched onto what does it mean to believe because you're going to achieve. I thought immediately about the Greenville High School football t-shirts and how they have believe on them and how they know that we're going to believe that we can do this and we're going to achieve a great season and we're going to win. I think that when we can kind of gather that together in our minds. We can kind of put Walt Disney World and Greenville football together, and we can kind of merge that all together. We can see that this passage kind of gets twisted into this belief that if we would just believe strongly in something and we would deeply kind of um, not doubt at all that we're going to be able to achieve that. And so we kind of look at what our culture would say about believing, and we know that it's um, it's easy to kind of um, catch on to this idea of believing in ourselves instead of believing in God. That we would believe in ourselves 
And I think that that's one of the reasons that this verse resonates so well because this is a very big part of our culture and it's um, one of those things that if you really just took out the Scripture reference and changed a little bit of words, you could make this into a great bumper sticker. Here's the way I wrote it. Whatever you desire, believe that you've received it and it will be yours. I mean, you could put that on your wall. You could write that on your refrigerator. You can tweet that. I mean, I mentioned Walt Disney and their adaptation of it. Actually, a quote directly from Walt Disney was, when you believe in a thing, believe in it all the way, implicitly and unquestionable. This idea drives people to connect with some deep secret thing within themselves that if I could just latch on to and not have doubt and believe in my ability, then I could achieve. And I don't want you to hear me wrong because I'm not saying self-esteem is a bad thing. I think self-esteem is good. But the Scripture here, and certainly Jesus who's speaking here, is not kind of leading us to tap into a secret belief that inside of ourselves we have the ability to bend the universe. Uh, That... But you wouldn't have to look very far to find books that would teach you that very thing. That if you would look inside yourself and believe that you can bend the properties of what's uh, allowed in the universe, that you can change your own health by how you believe in yourself, that you could in some way bring about blessing that otherwise wouldn't have been yours if you believe it. And so we have the power of positive thinking. This is a massively popular thing in our culture today. And I don't want us to confuse that New Age type of thinking with what Jesus is teaching here. Because they're not what, that's not what's going on. I think that's one of the ways that this can be twisted and confused a little bit. I think there's a second way that it could be confused. And that's more within the Christian arena that we can confuse or twist this verse a little bit. The second major way, I would say you want to add some other verses along to it to kind of collect them together. Um, John chapter 14, verse 13 and 14. John chapter 16, verse 23 through 26. Matthew 18, 19. Matthew 21, verse 21 through 22. Hebrews 11, 1. If you kind of pull all those together, you kind of look at what they say together, you can kind of collect them into this belief that's known kind of if you were to just say what's what's it known as it's known as name it and claim it it's a part of this uh this understanding that's very popular among especially some television preachers who are known for telling people that they can have health they can have wealth they can have an abundance of power if they'll just pray in faith and firmly believe that it is theirs you name what you desire say it out loud name it in prayer Claim it as yours. And then the only reason you would not receive that is because your faith might be shaky. And I think when we read this verse, it certainly appears to be um, a guarantee that we're going to get the things that we would pray for. Uh, This verse appears to be a promise that God's not going to say no to what we ask as long as we ask in the right way. And so many believers have spent Um, many hours and hours in prayer, praying fervently and praying uh, with as much faith as they could muster up for for their loved ones to be healed, for a problem in their life to be resolved, for some type of miracle to happen. And when the miracle doesn't happen, people will ask, 
what did I do wrong? Like, did I, did I say the words wrong? Did I, did I start the prayer wrong? Did I, did I not say the right words at the end? What did we do? Was there, was there sin among our group as we prayed together? Wait, was my faith lacking because I didn't stop the chemotherapy as I prayed for the cancer healing? People wonder what happens when the miracle doesn't, and they begin to think, what is, what's the mystery to why God did not intervene? Name it and claim it is a part of a prosperity gospel that I don't believe we find if we look at Scripture honestly. Because you have to take those passages I mentioned out of their context in order to get an understanding of, of a prosperity gospel that you could say we name it and we claim it and it's yours. Because you can only get that by twisting this passage and others like it. We're going to look at this one in particular today. Before we do, let's make mention of what we've mentioned every week. And that's context is king. There's great danger in removing scripture from its context. I want to illustrate this for you in a nice, wonderful way that has to do with food, because I love food. So let's imagine that you and I are eating and we're at a pizza place together and that we're kind of trying to decide what type of pizza we might order. And I go on to tell you that the best pizza, clearly the one that God intended us to eat because it brings joy to our taste buds, is Chicago deep dish pizza. I go on to tell you that if you really want to get specific, it's Giordano's Chicago deep dish pizza that is the very best pizza and that God has created us to eat this pizza. And you think, no, you try and argue to me that it's that New York style with its thin and wimpy crust, that that's the one that God desires. And I say, clearly you've not read the word. And so I point you to 1 Kings chapter 7, verse 31, and I read to you and I say, it was round as a pedestal is made a cubit and a half deep. And you don't know what a cubit is, and I don't really know what a cubit is, but I know it's deep. And so that if we're, it's clearly the size of the deep dish pizza, and I say, you're still not convinced. You're thinking, I don't know about that. God was talking about pizza in First Kings. And I say, well, it's true, and you might not know this now. And so then I point you to the best verse of all time in Philippians 3.15. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if at some point you think differently, that too God will make clear for you. And we order the deep dish. Now listen, the Bible's not talking about pizza. And it's not talking about, you know that's, that's not true. But, and that's a hilarious example of how we can take Scripture out of context. And we could make it be about anything we want if we shape the right story. This summer I've had some incredible experiences with our students. In middle school we went on a trip together uh, just a little ways up the road. And one of our students, I just want to share with you a direct quote of what our student said. Here's, here's the direct quote. We're sitting in small group time of all places. And here's what he says to me. He says, I got gorilla sweat in my mouth. That's really all he said. There was no context. I'm just kidding. There was context. I'm not going to tell you what it was because it's not as fun. Um, if you take a quote out of context, you can do anything with that quote. I mean, you could even make a news anchor rap if you take it out of quote. In fact, the late night show with Jimmy Fallon does just that. They take Brian Williams and they, they, they kind of um, just piece together 
all these pieces of his news stories. He never says anything different than the regular news. And they take a little word here, a little word here. I mean, it must take some people days of editing work to put this together. They add music and voila, Brian Williams raps. And we know, those of us who watch the news know, he's not rapping on the news. But Jimmy Fallon thought it would be hilarious. And it is. And they enjoy, enjoyed a good laugh together. That's actually them on the late night show. And they're laughing about it together. Because what we know is when you take something out of context, you can, take, you can make it mean anything. You can make it mean whatever you want. And if we're going to understand properly what God has to say to us about prayer, then we need to grab the whole context of what we're looking at here today. We often, though, don't like to do that. Because we live in a culture that loves the bumper stickers. We love to be able to capture a phrase in a short little statement and put it on a sticker and put it on the back of our car. And those of us who spend any time on social media love the phrase uh, that fits in 140 characters because you can tweet it. And so we love these types of things. I would say that we're hungry for tweetable-sized phrases that are short and that get to the point. And we love to kind of post those things on our refrigerators. And we like that. So we naturally are drawn to single verses and single phrases and often forget sometimes the context. But today, as a part of what we'll do, we'll look at the context of Mark chapter 11. And that's the outline that's in your bulletin there. If you want to just see, there's kind of, we've structured how that works because if you um, are familiar with your scriptures, then you know this is not the only place that some of this um, happens. Matthew tells a similar um, story here in his um, gospel. And so this is the way it's structured here in Mark. And that's in your bulletin there. I want to kind of tell you where we're going. We're going to kind of look at those three um, pieces there, how Jesus curses the unfruitful tree, then how he uh, cleanses the temple, and then, then how the disciples come back and they realize the tree is withered. We're going to look at that really briefly, kind of walk through those three things here in just a moment. And then we're going to understand then better the context and look again at verse 24. And we're going to read it again kind of in that context. In the process of doing that, we'll actually then look at what is our attitude when it comes to prayer. We're going to kind of examine our attitudes when it comes to prayer. And we're going to do that with the help of a comedian um, and some of his words to analyze the way our attitudes might be with prayer. And then we're going to end up by talking about a um, Facebook post and some of the responses you guys have shared with me this week. So that's kind of where we're going. Um, and let's jump in there with the context of um, of our passage today. And I want to read just that context together in Mark Chapter 11, we're going to start together in verse 12. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, 
Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus said to him, Have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, Whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. Well, we begin with this um, Jesus and his disciples walking. And in a distance, they see a tree. In full leaf, it looks as if it should have fruit on this tree. And we think, why then would Jesus go up and know that if Mark says this phrase here, it wasn't the season for figs. Like, is that Mark trying to explain on the behalf of Jesus? He really doesn't know how this works and it wasn't the season. Um, I think it's more helpful to understand this. When you look in the distance and you see this tree looks as if it should have fruit and it doesn't, The explanation of Mark makes better sense then to understand why Jesus would not have expected fruit on that rather than to say Jesus didn't know what he was talking about. And so he looks and sees and they walk up and and Jesus, not expecting fruit, sees that there is no fruit and then curses the tree. And people say, what in the world would that be about? And... um, Most commentators, there's really not a whole lot of difference of opinion on this at all, would say that this is a parable that Jesus is enacting, that he's told a whole bunch of parables about salvation, and this is a parable that he's acting out. It's not a parable of salvation, but one of judgment. And so if it's a parable of judgment, what then is this fig tree supposed to represent? Well, that's why we like the way Mark has structured this transition because he places the story about the cleansing of the temple right in between those passages about the fig tree being cursed and then discovered withered. And so we we would know then intentionally that the understanding of what's going on with the fig tree can be understood by what's happening then with the cleansing of the temple. And so we know not just from this passage But when we know our Old Testament well, we would say, well, I've heard some stuff about fig trees before in the Old Testament. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff in there. There's also some stuff in in Hosea chapter 9 in particular, if you want to check that out. If you look in Hosea chapter 9, verse 10, and then verse 15 and 16, you would see that the leaders of Israel are being condemned by the prophets for not being fruitful for God's kingdom. When, When... the nation of Israel, in particular being led by the leaders, don't produce fruit. There's condemnation for that. God's calling them, be fruitful. And so God's illustrated this before. And so when Jesus then comes into the temple and he sees that there's some stuff going on in this outer court, that he says, this is not great stuff. And listen, there is a whole sermon to be given about what Jesus does in the temple. And it's not today. Um, but it, I want to summarize just something real quick. And if you think I've never studied this, it's worth it. It's awesome. So Jesus goes into the temple court and he kind of 
focus is on what's going on with the correct coins. Why are we why are we cheating people with correct coins? And what what about all these certified clean animals? What's going on with that? All this religious activity, it's happening. But there's not a focus on prayer. There's not a focus on the fruitfulness that God has desired for us. And so He walks into this court. Uh, of, of the Gentiles and sees this is a place that God said, I want it to be a place of prayer for all nations. He says, God wants it to be a place where someone who's far away from God could come and stand and look in the direction of God and understand his character more fully. So that a Gentile who can't go in any further in that temple and worship could look and could see and could be involved in prayer to God that they would see what God's all about, that they would see from a distance who God is, and that as they were there, they would see the fruitfulness of His kingdom. And Jesus comes in and sees and represents this tree from a distance with no fruit and recognizes that in the temple the very same thing is happening. It looks as if there should be fruitfulness. All this religious activity should be fruitful. And the religious leaders are churning a machine And they're focusing on the wrong things. And it's a bunch of empty religious activity. And so then they leave the temple as Jesus has taught there. And they see that the next morning, this tree is withered all the way to its root. All the way to its root. And they were surprised. I love when they're surprised when Jesus says something as if it might not have actually happened. But they're surprised that this tree is withered. And so they kind of pointed out, it says they recalled, they remembered. There's a whole lot to be said about that word, remembered. Um, they recalled and remembered the teaching that God had given. They remembered what he had said. And then it, they kind of were hoping, I think, at that point. I'm, I'm, explain this to us, Jesus. Tell us what this is about. Explain this, this tree to us. And in typical Jesus style, he doesn't talk about the parable. He talks about the point. He goes right to the heart of the matter and he talks about faith. He jumps in and he says in this very context, verse 22, he says, have faith in God. You could also translate that with these words, hold on to the faithfulness of God. Have faith in God. You could translate, hold on to the faithfulness of God. And whichever way you choose to word that, I think it's helpful to see them both because the focus really becomes on the character of God, the faithful character of God, not the quality of our belief. Store that one away for how we think about prayer. The focus is the character of God, the faithful character of God, not the quality of our belief. So we read verse 24 in the context of verse 22. If we didn't have verse 22, then imagine why, how much questions people would ask as they read verse 24. It's not because we use the wrong words. You see, this is not a teaching, clearly, about believing in ourselves. This is not a teaching that everything has already been given to you. Your job is to to discover that it's already been given to you and then to believe deeply that it's already yours and then it will come to be. That's not the teaching here. That's not at all what's going on. Jesus is saying that if you're faithful to God, if you're faithful to the fruit that He's called you to bear for His kingdom, in human strength, very little could be done. But in God's power, 
If you believe in God's power, have faith in God, and you trust in Him, then great things are possible. Because the disciple who follows after God and trusts in Him will receive mountains being moved. Just as those disciples were created to bear fruit for God's kingdom, you and I are created in that same way. But I imagine that even the religious leaders might think that they were bearing fruit for God's kingdom. I wonder if Jesus would have walked into the temple and had a diplomatic discussion with them and said, men, you are um, allowing these money changers in the temple and they're cheating people out of what's going on. That They might have a whole list of reasons for why they were allowing that to happen. And they may have been pretty decent reasons. I don't know. But in the end, we're great at excuses, just like I imagine those religious leaders would be great at excuses for why we're not bearing fruit for God's kingdom. And that even though we put on a leafy display, that what Jesus is concerned about is the fruit. And if we forget that he's called us to bear fruit, then we're going to forget what we're, our gospel mission is in the end. And I know sometimes it's easier to put on a leafy display than it is to bear fruit. Because we think, I can do the show. I can, show, I can do this pretend like I'm a Christian thing. But bearing fruit's impossible. I don't know how to do that. I can't make someone else believe in God. Listen, when it seems impossible, this is what this prayer passage is all about. That when we have faith in God who can do the impossible, that there will be mountains that are moved in that task that we have of bearing fruit for God's kingdom. So Jesus teaches us, if at the moment it seems impossible, that there's a mountain in your way, that God will move that mountain. And now listen, there's not any recorded story of a disciple of Jesus ever moving a literal mountain up and into the sea. We don't know that it ever happened. We know that Jesus never did such a pointless thing. Because it's not about a Harry Potter wand lifting a mountain into the ocean. That's not what this passage is about. But I know, listen, I've heard questions to me. Why can't I move that mountain? Like, really? Because it says if I just have that faith. Throughout church history, when we look at, at what the church has done, there's story after story after story of God moving a mountain of opposition in front of people to accomplish His purpose on earth for people who have prayed in faith. This is not about moving a literal mountain. It's hyperbole. Anyone with half a brain knows it's hyperbole because Jesus nor any of His disciples never did that. So don't go out and pray that this mountain range will move. But we should pray that if there's anything in our way that would prevent us from bearing fruit for God's kingdom, that God would move that mountain for us. And how should we pray? Verse 25 talks a lot about the attitude in which we should pray. We need to pray with an attitude of forgiveness. I like this because it teaches us a really important thing. It's impossible to pray for forgiveness and to offer forgiveness to somebody else and not be humble. It's impossible to not have humility and to then go and and recognize when you need to forgive other people. Because part of being 
in a place where we can forgive is being in a place where we can be humble. And if we're not humbly praying, we're not praying properly. And if we're not praying properly, then we're not praying effectively. So often when we pray, our attitude has nothing to do with anyone beyond ourselves. And that's why I like this verse. Because when we begin with what we want, when we begin with what we desire, then we're looking for personal gain. We're approaching God with this, this I want mentality. That's backwards. What we do in that moment is we attempt to make God do something for us. We're attempting to force Him to act on our behalf. We're attempting to manipulate God. Here's how this works out in practice. That we would say, God, I really need a new car. I want to have a brand new Lexus. And I would like it to have air-conditioned seats. And we begin to pray for that and pray for that and pray for that. And eventually, we never win that um, magazine uh, lottery thing that we filled out the card a hundred times for. We never win the thing at the mall where we're getting the car. And we think, well, I'm praying, I'm praying, I'm praying, I'm praying. And it never, ever comes. Emo Phillips is a comedian who says, I prayed for a bicycle over and over and over. And I eventually realized God doesn't work that way. So then I went out and I stole one and I prayed for God to forgive me. And I got a bike. I think we have to check ourselves. Are we praying, God, this is, he goes on. He says, am I, he says, so I pray this new prayer. God, bend the properties of the universe for my benefit. I wonder, are we praying that? God, bend the way things work for my personal gain. If God doesn't do it, then we're going to sin and ask for forgiveness. Don't you know that this is the type of forgiveness or type of temptation that Jesus faced in Matthew chapter 4? That Satan had taken him to the top of the temple and said, you know, if you jump, God will catch you. And, um, and it's in the Word. I mean, it's Scripture. And had Jesus jumped, it would have been okay. I don't think he'd have really been sinning as much as putting God um, in a position where he was forcing him to act. You see, it would have been okay for Jesus to do that, but it's not okay for him to test God. It would have been okay for Jesus to prove in some demonstration that he could jump and not off the temple and not hurt himself, but it wouldn't have been okay to, to force God to act. And that's what Jesus said no to. And that's what you and I are struggling with all the time. Are we asking God to bend the properties of the universe for our benefit or for His benefit? Are we trying to manipulate God with the way that we talk to Him? I know that for me, it's way too easy for me to approach God with the wrong type of attitude. It's hard for me to kind of get this right. And I think, I hope if it's hard for me, then sometimes it's hard for you. I would assume often that I know what's best for me. I assume that I really, if I'm, I've thought about this and this is what I need, uh, let me tell you a story about my life and kind of how this worked out. When I was a teenager, much like most of you who have ever been a teenager before, 
um, as you get to be about 16, 17, 18 years old, you begin to realize that your parents lost their mind when you were a toddler and um, that they have no clue how to live, how to operate. And if they were a teenager again, they would die. And so you begin to recognize that it's your responsibility to break free from those parents and live your life the way that you should. And I also went through that process. And as a college student, I began to go off and prove to myself and all those around me that I knew how to live um, in this world. And then something weird started to happen late in my college years. I began to have these thoughts like, wait, my parents were right about that. And, and then I would shake that off and I would realize, oh, that, that was a hallucination. Something's going on here. And, and but then it kept happening. I kept thinking, my parents were right. No, no, that can't be. There was a big moment in my life. It really is a big moment. I tell it laughingly, but it was a big moment when I admitted to myself, my parents were right. They, they maybe they didn't lose their mind. And then there was a second big moment. And this was after I got out of college. I went back, and I remember, I'll never forget it, sitting down at a dinner table with my mother. So we were having, this is a conversation where it made sense. And I, I looked at my mom and I said, you know, you were right. And she was like, about what? Pretty much everything. <laughs> and, and of course, my mom, oh, really? Tell me more about this, how I was right. Oh, tell me more. And she's like wanting to video this. And it's like, I, I think it's filling up all these empty spaces from years of, of me being a teenager. Listen, we recognize, and if you're a parent right now of young kids, you know how this works. If you're a parent, you know that a lot of times our kids are asking for stuff, and it's not what they need. It's not even what they want, but they're asking for it. You know that's the case. For me, I have a four-year-old and a six-year-old, and on a daily basis, they ask for things. And I think, really? That's what, that's what you want? Like, I could be walking through the house. It was something. I don't remember what it was. But I was walking through the house, and I had something like WD-40, something weird. And, and I had it in my hand, and Elijah, my four-year-old, says, what's that? And I said, oh, it's like oil. Oh, I want some. And he, like, wanted to eat it. And I said, no, you don't eat this. Yeah, I like it. I like it. They do that when I have coffee all the time, and I can give them coffee. That's the fun one. Um, I give them a sip of that. Oh, I didn't want that. How many times do your kids ask you for things, and you know that's not what they need? Sometimes you know it's not even what they want. You know, I I thought, I asked you guys on Facebook, those of you who um, are on Facebook, and I said, I just thought, I would love to see if my friends think this. And so I kind of posted this question on there because I was thinking about this. And, and here's a thought that I had as I was turning this through my mind. I said, if we know this as parents, does God know this? If, if I know this as a father to my kids, does he know this as a heavenly father to me? Certainly he must. Certainly he must. And so I thought, what were some times maybe for us that maybe we thought we knew what was best and we didn't really. And so I posted this question. Um, it's one of your life group questions, actually the exact same word. Um, and actually look in your bulletin for the life group questions right now. Go ahead, like actually look there. Because the fourth question is not finished. Um, and uh, I, that's my fault. I started to write a question and then I stopped. So um, let me finish that question for you. Just how is prayer, kind of in the context of Mark eleven twenty four? how is prayer similar to question number three? That's all that is. So how, how would we relate prayer? So we're going to talk about this, and we'll do it with my Facebook question. But here's what I asked. I said, can you think of a time in your life when you got exactly what you asked for but ended up not wanting what you got? 
And so I posted that. I immediately got some responses. One of the first responses was from my wife. And we had just been in Johnson City maybe that day or it was the day before. And we're kind of driving back 11E towards Greenville. And you know that there's that red light. It's like, um, I don't know, it, it, the, the hot donuts light, you know. And if you're like me and you're a moth, you're like, donuts and you just fly at this and you can't help it it's like that it pulls you in well my wife um saw that sign and she was just wanting something sweet she was wanting something sweet we had eaten i just want something sweet go in there and i said you're not gonna like it because we like peggy ann's um we don't like Krispy cream as much and so we're peggy ann donut people we got there we went through the drive-thru we got two donuts she takes a bite of each one and that's it and so she says, you mean like the Krispy Kreme donuts? I got exactly what I was asking for. It's not what I wanted. And I, and I thought, yeah, that's exactly what it is. And people kept replying. They kept writing back. Um, some people would say things like, um, well, I thought this was funny. A teenager wrote relationships. And then a grandmother wrote, you mean some boyfriends? Um, they both um, wrote relationships. Relationships is one that showed up of something that we wanted. There was a parent in our congregation um, who said, my daughter, Reagan, asked for OxyClean for her sixth birthday. And um, she was convinced, she watched this thing on TV, she watched the commercial on TV and was convinced that this was the best thing ever. So this is actually a picture from her birthday party where she got OxyClean. She posts this picture and says, look at how delighted she is. (laughs) She realized it, it wasn't like, Pixie dust, I think, is she thought it, I mean, the commercial made her believe that it wasn't, uh, you know, some of these are hilarious responses, like the one with, with Reagan here. Some are, are, are funny, but some of the responses are serious too. And, and I, I read through and, um, you know, some people said for me, it was nursing school where I, I went there and I thought this is exactly where I was supposed to be. And then I realized this is not what I want. And, um, you know, my, my own sister wrote on there about a very personal struggle for her is that she wanted to be thin and she ended up being anorexic. And uh, she wrote that response on there. And then um, somebody else put um, that um, was one of my youth group kids from South Carolina. He's in his 20s now. And his mom just passed away from a battle with cancer. And um, he, write, he wrote down the passing of a mother. And I think he must have asked for it, and then here he is dealing with it, and he's realizing that's not what I wanted. You know, there, one of the guys on there, we went, he, he wrote something funny, and then he private messaged me afterward, and we started to dialogue about some stuff that he had gotten into that he, he thought it was what he wanted, but he realized it wasn't. And, and we started talking about that was the process for him. That was discovery of what God was going to do in his life. And I began to realize that two things. You guys relate with this. You guys live this. And you also understand that this is how God works in your life. That a lot of times the stuff we think we want is the very place that we learn the lesson about what we really wanted. A lot of times when we get exactly what we asked for, we realize that it's not at all what we wanted. And we know that our wish list is full of wonderful things. Some of you probably have a wish list and you've, you think it is the most holy and righteous wish list one could ever have. And as holy and as righteous as you may think it is, it might not be what God wants for you. Yes, God has the power to do all of those things that you may ask for. All of them. God has the power to heal the terminal disease. 
God has the power to do these things. I prayed for it for my stepmother, and he did not heal. God had the power to, but it wasn't the right thing. I don't necessarily know why. But I do know that sometimes when I get what I ask for, it's not really what I want. And yes, God has the ability to give you a new job or to give you a job. You may not have one. And yes, God has the ability, students, to help you pass the test you never studied for. God has the ability to move mountains, and God has the ability to wither trees, and God has the ability to bend the properties of the universe. But that's not what he's teaching us in Mark 11. It's that it's for us, because here's, when we don't check our attitude, we end up approaching God, not just with a request, but with a chip on our shoulder. We approach God and we say, God, if you'll just do this one thing, then I'll do all these things. But if you don't, then I'm not ever going to church again. God, if you'll just do this thing, then I'll believe in you and I'll know that you exist and I'll, I'll give you all the glory for everything that you do. But if you don't, I'm going to be mad. And some of us today are mad because God didn't do those things you asked for. Some of you, when you were a kid, when you were in elementary school, you asked God to do something, He didn't do it, and you're still mad today. Are we asking God to bend the properties of the universe for our desires and our personal kingdom and our personal gain? Are we asking Him to do it for His kingdom and for His gain? Do we carry a wish list to God with a chip on our shoulder? Are we asking Him, make me fruitful for your kingdom? And then we ask Him to do the supernatural. Because when God says He would move mountains, I believe it's true. God will move mountains for you and for us as a church as we pray in faith for Him to cause us to be a people that bear fruit for His kingdom. I don't know how you are responding today to those